welcome everybody. Uh, well, hi Gunnar, hi everybody. Uh, so I'm here at the University of North Carolina and, and we're here with the Cloud Apps team. Uh, I was really fortunate to get to see the, the team present at the Red Hat Summit this year and um, uh, Patrick was, uh, I forget what was happening, he was tweeting at me for some reason and, uh, and I'm like, well, all right, we'll, we'll get you on the show, I'll show you. And so, uh, well, so here they are and, and so I'm here live on campus. So uh, Patrick. Welcome to the show, and you've got your team. Why don't you introduce yourself and introduce uh, the team? Sure thing. Um, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Patrick Casey. Uh, I manage the uh, Middleware Services uh, team here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, just a little bit about uh, our team. We do uh, support most of the mission-critical uh, web and application servers for the university. Uh, those include our learning management system, our J2EE environments, our platform as a service, traditional www, uh, digital services type functionality, WordPress. Uh, we've got 32 different kind of service lines. Uh, with me today are two of my senior solutions engineers. I have uh, Stephen Braswell uh, and Boris Kirkchev. <laughs> Make sure I pronounce that correctly. Um, uh, with me, and they're throwing two leads on the um, uh, Carolina Cloud Apps project, which is our implementation of Red Hat OpenShift uh, on-premise. A little bit of just kind of factual information about the university, just to give everyone context. Uh, UNC Chapel Hill is the nation's first uh, public uh, university. Uh, we are a tier one research university. Uh, that means we've got a little bit over a billion dollars of research going on at any one given time. Uh, we are a fairly large organization. Uh, operating budget is a, a fairly large number. It's a couple billion dollars of operating budget. Uh, we've got 30,000 plus uh, students, uh, 10,000 plus employees. Uh, and a lot of people don't uh, realize how big uh, of an of a institution uh, higher ed can become. Uh, and so what we've been really doing is trying to work towards trying to uh, do more uh, innovative uh, IT, and that's really where Red Hat OpenShift uh, really fit the need for us. Uh, unlike many of the for-profit uh, types of customers that Red Hat has, uh, we have a, a constant uh, churn on students as, mm -hmm. they, as they are here, as they, as they graduate and they're not here. But as a, a, a leading public university, you've got a lot of smart people who come through campus. And so if someone's doing something for the professor, uh, we found ourselves in situations where a graduate student or a teaching assistant or an undergraduate would stand up a web server and put it on someone's uh, machine, put it under someone's desk, and when they left, it would never get patched, and you started getting into kind of some security vulnerability types of issues. Uh, but then we also started seeing more and more need for having an automated way to deliver um, effectively LAMP stacks uh, to the university. Uh, as, as kind of common requests that we were hearing from campus, uh, internally in central IT, we also wanted a way to start making sure that we were gaining the most uh, use from our, our, our resources. Uh, we've got a tremendous uh, footprint of uh, virtual machines, but were those virtual machines getting utilized mm -hmm. uh, fully? And so what we were really trying to do is to make sure that we could uh, uh, use as much of that virtual machine as we could. So we're starting to see a lot more uh, density and, and better usage of some of our physical resources. And those three kind of areas were really the, the focus points on why we released Carolina Cloud Apps, again, which is just Red Hat OpenShift um, in October of 2014. What we've seen, though, is, is a lot of um, um, interest in the application. We're starting to see people bring things down from public providers, uh, whether at an Amazon or an Azure or just with local ISPs, 
people used to go out and just do it with uh, any of these sorts of providers, which meant that they were incurring charges to do that. And we were having still some of the security kinds of issues that we had previously. We're bringing a lot of those people back in because we're providing this as a freely available service to everyone on the Carolina campus, uh, faculty, staff, and students. Mm. Uh, so by providing it free uh, is one thing that really got us a lot of interest because people could save a couple of dollars. But then we're also trying to make sure that we're actively uh, participating and working with those uh, campus entities. So we've got kind of this role of a developer liaison who help uh, make sure that your application transition is successful. They, people see that we're willing to kind of uh, have some skin in the game with them to help them uh, use the platform. And that's really uh, shown a lot of goodwill with the campus community. Uh, and when we talk about that campus community, again, it could be a 17-year-old uh, student, it could be a 70-year-old administrative assistant, or it could be a, a seasoned IT professional anywhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Uh, that's that's. I, I think that is a very different thing whenever you have uh, such a varied range in like ages and experience levels and skill sets uh, that, that you guys have to cater to. Um, so Stephen, let's, let's get you on the board. Why don't you introduce yourself and, and what you do? Um, I'm Stephen Brazel. I've been working here for about 16 years. Uh, there was at least one year where I was uh, just a contractor, so 17 years at university um, after coming to school here. Um, I've been with the middleware group probably for seven or eight years of that time. I started out um, doing system administration um, for the help desk part of the organization. I moved on to doing email administration and then um, got into this group and I've been um, working here ever since. Cool. Cool. Boris? Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, so, yeah, I've been working for Middleware for now going on four years, I believe. Yeah. Uh, transplanted here from Texas before. I, I, I could tell the Texas <laughs> accent. The Texas yeah. accent is yeah. thick with this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, uh, you know, I've been uh, doing technology since my teens basically and yeah. I've had some form of a IT job since I was a teenager uh, and I started actually making a career out of it my freshman year of college so I've uh, been doing it for a while now uh, but yeah I you know uh, the group I work for does many things so it's very hard for me to say that uh, I do one thing mm -hmm. uh, but at the moment my main focus is on um, OpenShift yeah, yeah. So what? So as far as like before, you guys were using OpenShift. What, what, what did things look like before that, and and what got you on the road to OpenShift? Well, uh, so we have uh, we we were using we have AFS the um, the hierarchical file system. Andrew file system. Yeah, we still have it. Wow. Um, and and so we had uh, web servers where uh, people would would uh, store their uh, files and their and their simple scripting applications. You had Perl, Python, those kinds of things. Yeah. PHP, and uh, would be hosted from the central web server. And we had a, a mechanism in place for that. I've had it for years, and um, we've talked about uh, decommissioning that. Um, and we need somewhere for those legacy applications to get migrated to. And did, and they're small applications, so we don't want to a lot of uh, VMs for those things. Right, and uh, subscription for the yeah. OS and all of the, all and the that, expense. And that's the thing, yeah. is, is, is even for the, the AFS type space, we had uh, subscription tools, so there was all this uh, self-provisioning. Because, yeah. um, again, with so many people on campus, we can't hand-create all those accounts. Um, 
I was at a O'Reilly Open Source Conference in Portland some years ago, and two Red Hat employees were demoing OpenShift. It was a late uh, 1.x release. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I came back and was telling Patrick about it. I was like, um, this looks really interesting. You know, we might be able to use this sometime. And it wasn't for about another year or so later before we uh, started engaging with Red Hat and and started a proof of concept and and did that for six months or so. and. Um, and it's like, yeah, this could provide the value. This could provide a place for us to migrate these existing applications. Potentially in the future, we could collapse some other things into this environment as well. And, and mm -hmm. that's kind of how we got started with that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, AFS. I, I used to use AFS a long time ago. And I remember when the World Wide Web came along and that sort of made AFS less necessary because it, it, somebody described the World Wide Web to me as basically AFS but just read-only. And, uh, but yeah, wow. Um, so that's cool. That's cool. So with, so what are some of the things that, that you guys are seeing in terms of like number of apps and, and the consolidation process that you guys have seen and some cool apps that, that you guys are running? You got the stats. What are the numbers? Um, currently we've got, uh, right around 450 applications deployed to the platform. Uh, we've got a user count uh, that's just a tad under 600 uh, individual users. Um, and those applications kind of uh, uh, run the gamut. You see yeah. you see a little bit of everything. Uh, there's kind of some of the simplistic applications, which is going to be, um, uh, you know, a content management system, whether it's WordPress, whether it's Drupal, someone's just looking at a place to house some content. Uh, but then you get more complicated applications. Uh, of various sorts. Our, our user support and engagement group is doing a lot of work where they're uh, moving a lot of their applications from AFS or from externally hosted solutions that handle some of that user support uh, help desk, uh, service desk sort of type of functionality. So we've got some business applications like that, but then we're starting to see a growing number of uh, what I would guess I would call kind of research type of applications. And some uh, probably good examples would be that uh, We've got one that is a, uh, it's called Caterpillar's Count, uh, which is a uh, Caterpillar. I, I, we actually think it's more bugs in general, but it, it has the ability to help classify um, animals. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're out in the field and you take a picture of a Caterpillar, it phones back to the OpenShift application uh, and starts doing classification of that sort of, uh, of that animal and where it was found and, and where other species of that are found. Uh, applications like that, but then we also have some critical business applications, and probably the best example we could give you is uh, the stories.unc.edu website, which is used by our university development office, which is the fundraising arm for the university, and so they send out blast notifications to donors. Uh, hey, look, uh, would you like to donate money to the university? Uh, all of those come back to uh, one of our OpenShift applications, and it actually takes that information in. Uh, which is used to do the ongoing, um, I guess, funding of the university. That's cool. Or do you have any yeah. other applications that you've been uh, working I don't with? have applications, but I do have a stat that I like throwing out. All those 450 apps live on a total of four servers, wow. uh, actual node servers yeah. uh, that are not doing support for the environment or anything like that, which, you know, when you're talking about density, I don't, I don't think you can... Uh, densify any more than that <laughs> no i i know i know of uh you know whenever you're doing like one vm per application right, sometimes yeah. your application may span multiple vms and uh and i i know of 
some customers that they do one VM per hypervisor, which is another insane <laughs> yeah, story, you wow. know. But, yeah. but you're you're the other side of the spectrum. That's that's really cool. Um, so with so it sounds like you you have this whole spectrum of applications of somebody just wants to do a quick and dirty mm-hmm. app and then or up to the whole mission critical as far as from funding. One one of the other interesting things that you mentioned too, and I, I noticed this with a lot of the universities is. Um, the, like you said, the 600 users, um, you probably have 25% turnover-ish, mm-hmm. right? When and, and which is typical of most universities as students graduate and everything. How how are you guys doing things like the identity management to wire that into OpenShift and like I, I think that would be a really like you're probably not sitting there typing really fast and 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 you know 25% you're editing Etsy uh, password and stuff. We're integrating with our uh, campus uh, single sign-on solution yeah. um, that then feeds our identity uh, or the identities in um, OpenShift. So it's, you know, uh, as they fade out of the uh, the identity management backend, whether mm-hmm. it be LDAP or AD, um, they, they fade out of uh, cloud apps. And that's why we have actually two separate um kind of behind the scenes environment, you know, Carolina Cloud Apps is the uh, uh, the front door to uh, essentially what are two separate services. One is for everybody and then the other one is for um, the exact case of you have a student helping you develop, as a professor, research professor, you have a student helping you develop your application. Um, well, when the student graduates or, uh, you know, goes to go do their PhD, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, the turnover happens, um, we devise the way for that application to continue living on with a new, uh, well, a new owner. I yeah, guess. new, yeah. new, new owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then that, you know, kind of has, has turned into what we call VIP apps, uh, rather than just cloud apps. Uh, but that that's kind of the way we we solve that that problem. Yeah, and and the idling helps with the multi tenancy, so that you know even if we aren't decommissioning the application or the user right away, it, it gets idled down if it's not being actively used, and so uh, we aren't using those resources. Yeah, and that's that's what really helps with the scaling yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Do you how, like when you see the idling is uh, at any point in time? Do you see a lot of the apps are idle or are they? Uh, like what? What is the activity you see of, of those four hundred fifty apps? It fluctuates for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that we have an active uh, active monitor to measure, uh, other than the what is our max count and yeah. are we able to fit that max count on our live servers? But uh, I, I would say that you know we, we're probably at about forty percent active. Oh, out of those. that's that's still pretty awesome yeah. for four systems yeah. yeah and a lot of our systems a lot of the business systems that are, are high impact we uh set to not uh ever have them uh, never idle yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 we had cases where idling was uh making those applications slow as they were spinning back up because right. over the weekend they weren't being used so they would hit our threshold um and so whenever those cases came we put them yeah. in the don't idle list but otherwise uh it's it's been great to you know have this resources spin down so that if someone is just testing, oh, I want to learn this programming language, 
and I'm doing it for a week and I don't ever touch it again, but I don't delete it either. Because yeah. even though in our documentation, our training and stuff, we, we would show, all right, please delete your application so that not only do you, because we're, we're limiting the number of gears you get, so you can have that gear back and, and do something else with it, but then you're not using the resources. So just getting in that habit, just like how people may not log out of a browser window, they just yes. close it yeah. and get them in the habit of doing those kinds of things. Do you uh, want to talk a little bit about the oversubscription rate? I mean, because we don't really uh, delve into that too much as we're idling down. Yeah, um, we so we um, we looked at how much we might think people would would use, how much would idle, and then I don't know, add in ten more to that. So uh, we have a, a subscription rate so that we can uh, uh, have more gears created on on a set of hosts, and even even more than the resources are there, so that. So that uh, we, we know that somebody's not going to, to be using this gear because they're just testing it for whatever reason. It may be us testing it because we have 10 gears each ourselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and we forget to, to delete them or something. So um, being able to do that uh, is nice so that we can use as much of the resources um, on the server as possible and, and not have to keep adding on new nodes um, just because we think we're going to have this capacity we can ever subscribe and, and, and get more for uh, bang for our buck. Okay. And so one thing you mentioned, Stephen, was training. So whenever you bring something in like OpenShift, what advice do you guys have for, it's like, it's one of those, if you build it, then they'll come and it's like, you install it. Well, it's there. You have at it. I mean, how did you, uh, did you guys do any sort of active missionary work to, yeah. to so, so one of the biggest challenges for this project with, for us is we were typically the behind the scenes uh, people. So yeah. we manage uh, these large 32-something services, but our customers were internal to our department. So we didn't actually deal as much with campus customers. And this one, we're going to have to deal with campus customers. Yeah. That was a change in, in the way that we, uh, we uh, uh, worked with the service. So uh, some of the challenges was uh, documentation. So we would write internal documentation and write it so that as much as possible could, it could handle um, from you know very little about technology. You're just using this to deploy a WordPress and, and do website stuff inside WordPress after that. You're not really doing anything complex to someone that's a seasoned developer. So yep. um, we had to do that with our documentation and, and, uh, and write a significant amount of it. And then the other thing was marketing. Yes. So we wanted to get people to use this, know about it stuff. So we have like many conferences that the university puts on for internal use. So we would present at those. Or we would do uh, other one-off things. We'd go meet directly with uh, large departments. Um, we uh, started using Twitter. We weren't big Twitter users. So uh, it was one of our first Twitter accounts. And even if it was only for the university use, tweet things out, okay, there was an outage, uh, we're doing maintenance, um, we're, we're some other information about the service. Um, we had posters mm -hmm. um, that we would put out and tell people about it. And then we did, we worked with Red Hat and did one training session um, with about 40 something people. Um, that was a little challenging just because of the large number, but we needed to do that to have that experience. Um, it was beneficial in some ways, but, it, but we decided, okay, maybe having one-on-one -on -one, um, with smaller groups yeah. is, is a little better. And if we ever did do training again, um, we would do it in much smaller uh, groups uh, because you know this person's using Windows, this person's using Mac, um, this person installed a version of Ruby that's not the right version, so they need to switch and stuff. Yep. So there were some challenges there. 
and, and that's kind of how we did with, with user engagement parts. Okay, yeah, and I would yeah. dial back just because I know Steven won't say it himself. Uh, a lot of the marketing work that we had to do was, was new to us. Uh, mm-hmm. They clearly, like Steven mentioned, was not something that we were accustomed to doing, but Steven spent a tremendous amount of his own work time and personal time in developing a commercial for the application. He developed the website for the application. And when our uh, communications folks saw both of those, they were like, hey, look, can he do some work for us? <laughs> uh, so uh, a lot of the design work for the, for the website uh, uh, was, was really just Steven's uh, own skills. And you can see that at cloudapps.unc.edu. Uh, I'm not sure that the commercial's there any longer, but uh, that was a, a, a joyful occasion as well. Oh, is it, it, is it on like YouTube or it's something? It's on YouTube, or? but it's privately listed, so uh, I can send it to you. Yeah, well, we, should, we need to add that to the show notes. Sure. Um, that would be, be fun. It was real fun. We made fun. Uh, I mean, we didn't make fun of Stephen, but it, it actually was very professionally done. It felt like an Apple commercial. I mean, it was... It was <laughs> wow. <laughs> so when we did the first couple of public demos, a lot of times we would just have that playing in the background. They were like, who did that? And it was like, Stephen did it. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So now now you'll be doing weddings and yeah. I've done, done weddings. <laughs> so so what what uh, like do you also do like like uh, like as far as like you want them to be as self uh, like there's a small number of you guys and you got <laughs> six hundred some users. Um, you want the you want things to be as self service as possible. Do you guys do like? email list or have the community support each other or do you do like office hours or IRC or how do you, like how can how do you guys scale in terms of your evangelism uh, I don't want to say that um, we wrote brilliant documentation but I would say that the documentation we have actually hit a very uh, good cross-section of things that people would do yeah but uh after i would say probably about after we had our training class um and this 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 only speaks to patrick's brilliance uh you know we have a meeting and he sits us down and goes guys this is not going to work like this we need somebody to be essentially the developer evangelist um and um we had we have two now we have one uh, developer evangelist that will go out there and work with people one-on-one and get them going with their project to the point where they're comfortable with what they're doing and how they're doing it, mm-hmm. uh, which I think garners a lot of positivity from our users because it's it's always nice when you get that personal uh, personal touch, right? Whenever you have somebody come out to your office to help you with your problem. Right. Uh, which which helps sell the service. Right, um, right. So. How how we'll scale that in the future, we're not sure because you know our, our numbers are still fairly small, and we're able to go out and, and meet people uh, in the, either individually or in small groups. Yeah. And another thing that we we emphasize whenever we would do these public presentations is, or even to individuals, you know, we wrote the documentation. We know the product, so if there are things that are missing or, or whatever, let us know, and we'll update it. And we want that feedback, and so that we can, you know, help the next person who may have the same issues as a, as a particular customer did. Yeah, and yeah. just just a couple of additions. Uh, Boris mentioned that we went from two developer uh, evangelists to one. That's just because we had someone. Uh, we had a, a little staff turnover. Mm-hmm. We will be scaling that back up. So we're actually recruiting right now. So shameless plug. <laughs> Anyone's looking for work? <laughs> there you go. Uh, but uh, back to the documentation uh, again. What we 
didn't want to do was necessarily rewrite the Red Hat documentation set. We wanted to figure out what we actually thought were our normal use cases. Yes. And so we did a lot of internal brainstorming trying to figure out what was that happy medium. Uh, and then we didn't write a book. We wrote, right. we wrote point documentation for those, I'm going to call it 25 to 30 different things that we thought users would want to do. And then we glued it together with a, uh, a learning guide that said, hey, we think this is the order. If you're going to read them all, this is the way you probably want to read them. But if really all you're trying to do is figure out how to get a, a vanity URL for your application and you need some SSL certificates and that sort of stuff, just read that one document. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of that documentation uh, is customized to UNC domain names, customized to UNC terminology, and then at the bottom links you off to a Red Hat document that says if you need further information, you can feel free to go out and read the real manual. We're just trying to put a little bit of a, a customer service spin on it so that people don't have to figure out too much on their own. We're really just trying to help them out. But like Boris said, when you actually have someone who comes out and sits with you, and you have someone who's actually helping you work through some of those problems, uh, people feel that we're invested with them. People yep. feel that there's a, a, a real collaborative, uh, a collaborative na uh, nature to this whole uh, idea, and people have really responded well to that. So we're going to try to do it. I would answer Stephen's question as as we collapse more to the service, we have to do less work externally, and some of those resources are going to be freed up as we free up employee time, uh, maybe they, those employees start transitioning into more of that developer liaison, developer evangelist sort of a role uh, as we start collapsing down, for example, our business Java applications uh, and do that. We're going to have to do a lot of engagement with our enterprise applications group, so we're going to be doing that anyways. Well, we've got a, a full resource who's assigned to do that today. Well, if he's doing a big Oracle cluster today, but we're doing EAP tomorrow. I mean, it's really the same resource. He's just doing different things. So we, it's really a reuse of the same resources, which will allow us to still do it. So I think we can scale that out fairly effectively. And at some, at some point, it'll um, reduce our resource needs because they'll be able to restart their own JVMs and not have to involve us right. and, and other things. They'll, they'll, be, they'll have more self-control over um, their little container environments in the future um, right. and, and wouldn't burden us with having, we're writing secondary tools to, to allow them to do that or we're having to do it for them. Yeah, and also you don't need to maintain those VMs, that you know, one VM per app thing and, and patching them and all that. So that's, that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah, so if we start looking out into the future, like what, where do you see the technology going as, as things like containers come on board or mobile or, or you know, what, what do you guys think about where, where the puck's going? Well, one, I don't think containers are going anywhere. Right. Uh, you know, going away, I should say. Not yeah, that's, anywhere. That's, yeah, okay. Um, I think the next big problem to be solved that we're just now seeing um, work being done on is security. Uh, uh, yeah. And securing the container and making sure that you can um, deliver a container that you can truly say this is a secured environment, you can deploy it on Docker, you can deploy it on, you know, Rocket, you can deploy it on OpenShift, you can deploy whatever you want to, you know, whatever you need to deploy it. And it's, um, I don't know, for lack of better better word, verified mm -hmm. uh, that, that you are truly running something that is not going to harm your system. You're not, you know, loading a, a piece of uh, malware, right. uh, essentially, into your uh, internal network. Uh, it's uh, to me that's going to be the next big leap in that 
technology. So, so why is security so important for you guys? You guys are a university. You, you're open. You're out there, right? Oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. We're, we're yeah, out you, there. We, you, we allow everything. You don't even have a firewall, right? <laughs> yeah, no firewall, no nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, so what, tell uh, us about, like, like, I'm so used to talking to government customers like DOD, intelligence community, you know, and they're hyper security focused, but you guys, uh, you're also focused on security, but, but in different ways, I guess, right? Or, uh, or similar ways too. Well, similar ways because yeah. um, Star University is is a is a medical school, right? And the hospital, which isn't necessarily part of the university, but still we interact with a lot of stuff. Like, for some of our uh, uh, research researchers in the med school get data from the hospital, so we need to deal with HIPAA data and right. another uh, PII. And then on on the education side, we have FERPA laws um, for the student data that we have to. Um, um, watch out for and we don't and security around protecting that data that's not de-identified is, is is critical for us with security wise I mean there's security for the systems as well so that you know it's a multi-tenant solution you don't want this user to be able to look into this user's container and, and right. see what's going on and so there's that level of security but protecting our actual data is, is what comes critical for us yeah okay so so yeah uh, protecting the data making sure the apps don't attack each other. What about um, things like uh, getting your container images from known sources? Like, or, or do you guys worry about, you know, let's say with, with OpenShift, people pull down a container of just from Docker Hub or some random place, and do you guys worry about that? Or, or yeah. if a student can yeah. just pull it down? Yes, or, but no, yeah. we're, we're hoping that eventually, like the, the platform and service types tools will help protect those. So even if you, if they download something from random from Docker Hub, it it would protect our environment. As for protecting whether it's going to do something malicious with their application, um, we'll have to make a decision on how to uh, to police that. Um, yeah. Whether whether we want to say okay, you can only get things that are curated by Red Hat and come from our registry, or would we allow you to pull down whatever you want, but you need to, somewhere, someone needs to accept the risk that that may not be um, the right image for what you're trying to do. Um, I don't think we, we've gotten far enough to uh, set what we, our policies would be for that. Yeah. We, 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 we a, recognize it, but we, we're not far enough in to, to make those decisions. We had a spirited conversation internally about that, uh, and, and there were, um, how shall we say, differences of opinion. <laughs> on limiting the functionality within the platform or do we want to truly drive innovation and, and, and it becomes an interesting challenge when you start phrasing it like that because you've really got to kind of uh, try to balance um, what users want to do mm -hmm. with what the information security office might uh, want them not to do. And so a lot of our conversations about that are going to be probably be centered with the information security office and trying to work with them. Uh, to ensure that they understand some of the things uh, that'll become the risk points that they have to uh, either accept or deny the risk on and trying to make sure they understand some of the underlying technologies uh, that we're talking about. A lot of the new technologies aren't necessarily things that they will have had experience with, so a lot of this is going to be us trying to work uh, with potentially training uh, people on how to use the platform from a security perspective and then have them try to do penetration testing and playing with some of that functionality and then assuming some of the risks of, of any sort of an image that you just happen to pull down from Docker, Docker Hub. Yeah. Um, some of the other security aspects that we're looking at is with OpenShift version 3, we're able to integrate with our uh, F5 load balancer 
and we've licensed their uh, uh, um, web application firewall so we can put that in the front for incoming vectors that will obviously won't solve our image problem which right, right. we've talked about that you know we could look at tools like OpenSCAP and stuff so that scan some basics inside the containers but for incoming which we don't have today other than you know whatever our hardware firewall protects okay you can only let on an ADN443 but being able to uh, uh, um, check for these uh, uh, vulnerabilities and whether it's in the application that someone actually wrote whether they're using a framework or it's just something malicious trying to see what it can find you know mm -hmm. being able to add in that web application firewall to, to help um, monitor and or block some of that uh, attacks yeah and we'll do that at multiple levels again the the information security office has a couple initiatives on hardening the entire university infrastructure and, and web application firewalls are one way, but hardware firewalls is a, a completely other way. And there's gonna be kind of a multi-leveled approach to security. Uh, and then we'll be doing SE Linux, we'll be the open SCAP, we'll have things on kind of that multi-layered onion. Keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And so we're adding more and more uh, features. Obviously we can't talk too much in depth about right. all the things that we're doing, but we've got some uh, things that we're doing today for some of our environments that proactively um, uh, see interesting traffic and when that happens, uh, certain things happen automatically. Uh, other things as we do with the web application firewall will stop you just, it'll stop you sooner. So some of that's being baked into our rollout of uh, OpenShift version three uh, so that when we roll that out that we'll have some of that uh, enhanced security turned on uh, from the moment that we actually run that uh, onto the campus. Yeah. Well, cool. And anything else you, you guys see from a trend standpoint when a talk about? Well, I think when the Boris answered it, he answered it from a, a how are we going forward. Uh, I wanted to just mention that what we see on the campus is, again, it's an interesting notion because uh, kids today grow up with the ability that everything is commoditized, mm -hmm. right? I can go to a website, I can click on a button. Uh, what we're trying to do is make sure that button is our button. <laughs> so it's not quite uh, the same uh, way to look at the question, but it is something that we're trying to make sure that we are doing things that are more in line with what the expectations that people have for IT today. It can't be necessarily submit me a trouble ticket and then I'm going to pass that trouble ticket around until it gets resolved uh, six groups six days later, right? It needs to be a, a much quicker turnaround. And that's where the self-service provisioning becomes uh, something that I think our campus users are expecting. Yes. We need to make sure that, that we can meet that level of expectation. Uh, from a from a service level perspective, yeah, no, that you're right, and that's where, um, this, and I think people are conditioned that it's like, oh, I'll just start up a Slack instance or Trello or whatever, and it doesn't cost anything. And if the central IT isn't providing that, people, you know, the the water is just going to flow <laughs> around, and, and you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, and we had that problem um, where uh, students were developing really cool web applications that might screen scrape something because we don't provide an API for it to get, you know, it's data they had access to, um, but they're running on a laptop in their dorm room because we didn't provide um, some kind of solution for them to host it. So, and we don't want them hosting something like that on necessarily on AWS either. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where it would be nice if we provide a solution for them to host it on Make campus, it yeah. particularly if they're gonna, it's a campus solution. And um, um, uh, OpenShift for us uh, was new at the time, so we were trying to get them engaged, engage with them, and, and provide solutions um, for them, tools for them to be able to do those kinds of things. So that you know, oh, you know, it's impressive. Maybe we'll hire you when you graduate, and you can write those kind of tools for the university. Yeah, 
Yeah. So okay. Well, let, let's let's wrap things up. Let's let's talk a little bit about some fun things that you guys like to do. Let's let's go around the horn. And and so, what do you like to do for fun when you're not uh, uh, doing open shift stuff, and, which is fun all by itself. I've got a teenager and an almost teenager, so so that's that's interesting in and of itself. Uh, but we love to travel, uh, so we we travel as much as we can, uh, both with the kids and without the kids. Uh, so we have traveled uh, recently both to San Francisco and the West Coast, yeah. as well as uh, a, a week and a half up in Maine. Uh, but for, before that, we did European travel. So we've taken the kids across the pond a few times, and uh, it, it's what we live for. Nice. So where where is your favorite place to go with kids and without kids? Favorite place with kids is still Disney. Yeah. Disney's just easy. It's, it's easy with the kids. You don't have to really work too hard to get them to have a good time. Um, Europe was a little bit harder with the kids because they don't necessarily want to go experience the Louvre. Ah, right, right. <laughs> you know, you've got to you've got to kind of pick those. Uh, without the kids, uh, I still I haven't been there with just my wife. I'd like to be in Paris uh, mm. alone uh, or Rome. <laughs> oh yeah, alone with 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 the missus would be uh, a, a lot more fun I think than than with the kids because the kids had earlier bedtimes because they were much younger at that point in time. Uh, yeah. Okay. And and I, because I'm boring, I'm also going to mention that you're a big uh, Virginia Tech fan, so you do a lot of. Oh yeah, that's, for the that, that that does happen. Uh, if anyone goes out to my Twitter, it'll be some combination of IT and then all things Virginia Tech. So yes, I am a <laughs> Virginia Tech Hokie through and through. Uh, used to have uh, season tickets to their football games. <laughs> Me and my son go up all the time. He wanted to go up this past weekend. So yeah. yeah. I'm a Hokie living in North Carolina, wow. working at a, a peer university even. Yeah. So it makes some things a little bit interesting. Cool. Steven? So I'm, I'm actually fairly boring. I actually like really like technology personally, so I yeah. do a lot of technology stuff at home, um, just mostly learning and then a little bit of towing. I also like travel, and, and by chance, uh, the first time I ever went to Europe, uh, Patrick and his family were there too, so there was one oh. day that where our paths crossed in Paris, and, and we got to hang out. Um, that's that's cool. So it's, you know, it's nice to hang out with someone outside of the professional environment, especially in a foreign country. But I, I like traveling a lot too, and then um, video games and movies are my my other things. Nice favorite video game, favorite movie. See, I'm big in the Call of Duty series yeah. uh, for first-person shooters. Um, these days, I'm playing a lot of uh, Overwatch. Um, uh, movie, I don't know. I, there are a lot that I like, so I, I've, I've never really picked one. And, and it's funny, there are a lot of uh, classic movies that, yeah. are, that are people's favorites, you know, things like Godfather stuff, which yeah. I still haven't seen. But I actually, oh. Amazon would have it on, on special, so I'm like, I want to watch that one day. I'm going to buy it. But I haven't seen it because I haven't been taking time to watch it. So uh, I, don't, I don't know about favorite movie. Yeah, maybe it's a Godfather. So. Maybe, maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> All right. Okay, Boris, let's close this out. Uh, well, I actually tend to combine my uh, two favorite things uh, together as much as I can, M much to Patrick's uh, displeasure sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I I play water polo and I travel. Yeah. Um, and there are times when my travel plans do not work out as I planned them. <laughs> um. But yeah, uh, I would definitely say water polo is probably my first and big, uh, big thing. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been playing that sport since I was ten years old when my dad took me to the pool. Uh, no swim lesson at, at any point in you know up until that time, uh, and the coach asks him, 
can can he swim? He turns to me, can you swim? And I shrug my shoulders and I hop in the, at the time we were in a diving well and I hop in the diving well and just start whirlwilling my hands until I made it to the other side. And coach goes, he'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Sink or swim, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I tend to travel uh, to play the tournaments and uh, I coach a bunch. Uh, I actually coach the UNC club team here and I've coached uh, a couple of women's teams that have uh, played and actually competed internationally. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. So, Boris, I'll let you close this out. If people want to, hopefully we'll get the, the link to the video for the commercial, um, but to learn more about the Carolina Cloud apps and, and all that, uh, what URL do we want to send them to? Oh, please uh, go to uh, dgshow.org. Excellent. Okay, guys. Well, hey, thanks for joining us, and thanks, everybody, for listening.